Last week we left God's people drifting away from Jerusalem and dispersing to their homes. They hadn't been able to withstand the fierceness of the opposition and the discouragement that kept coming upon them. And with just the foundations of the temple laid, the work ground to a halt. And that construction site lay silent probably for the best part of 16 years. There can be times when it seems as if God is not doing anything at all. That's how it seems. There can be periods in the life of a local church when perhaps it may appear that the building work has stopped. But we learn from this next phase in Ezra's record that actually God is still very much at work. And he is actually still doing something very significant amongst his people. The year is now 520 BC. Darius is on the throne in Babylon and Persia. But God is on the throne in heaven. And what is he to do with this dejected people? Do you ever feel dejected as you look around at the world you live in? Do you ever feel dejected as you look at the state of the church? By that I mean the whole Christian church, not that we're perfect here at Belvedere, but do you not sometimes feel dejected when you look around at the state of the church? Where is God in all of this? What is he doing? Is he doing anything? We discover that at this time when it seems as if nothing is happening at all, that God actually still is doing a great deal. And although it may not seem as if it's up to much at first glance, what God does is going to have a huge impact upon his people and all the discouragement is going to be dispelled. The first thing that we notice is that God is faithful to the weak in faith. God is faithful to the weak in faith. Verse 1 of Ezra 5, God is still over them. God is over them. It's only four words, but what a huge statement that is. What enormous implication lies in those few words that God is over them. God is still their God, and he's still moving and working on their behalf. Last Sunday evening, we started to look at the theme of God's providence, and of course, the, the evidence of God's providence can be seen on every single page of the Bible. And I also mentioned that in future weeks, in a few weeks' time, we'll be going back to that theme, we'll be considering that God has a very special place and a very particular providence towards his people. And in the Old Testament here, we have an example of it. He's over them. Now, of course, there's a very real sense in which God is over everything. He's over the whole world, but he's very much, in a very particular way, over his people. He was over Joseph's brothers in Genesis ensuring that they did not kill him, although some of them wanted to. 
and that a group of traders came along at just the right time to buy Joseph as a slave. And those traders just happened to be going to the country where God wanted Joseph to be and where he would eventually go on to become Pharaoh's right-hand man and so on. God was over them. It was because God was over them that Jacob, who God would rename Israel, along with all of his family, ended up in Egypt. And even when the children of Israel became slaves and were terribly mistreated, God was still over them. And the unfolding of the story of Moses and of how God brought Israel's descendants back out of Egypt only goes to show that God is over all things and especially he is over his people. God was over Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw a while back in one of Jeremiah's prophecies. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of a vast pagan empire, was used by God, as was recalled in our reading, to take Judah and Benjamin into captivity to destroy Jerusalem in judgment over their sin and disobedience. God was over all of that. <coughs> And Nebuchadnezzar was not the first pagan king God had used in that way against Israel. God was over Cyrus in the opening verse of Ezra when he issued that decree that enabled them to return to Jerusalem. God is over this edict that Darius will confirm in chapter 6. God is over all things, but he's over his people in a special way. And he remains faithful, even when you're weak in faith. I suspect that's extraordinarily good news for you this morning. It is for me. Even when you feel weak in faith, even when you know you're weak in faith, God will remain faithful to you. There'll be times when you struggle. There'll be times when you struggle to see or understand what exactly it is that God is doing right now. There'll be circumstances that God takes you into. And some would say to you, that can't possibly be God's doing. He'd never do that. Just like they'd have said that to Joseph, to Daniel. To Stephen in the book of Acts as the stones rained down, rained down on him to kill him. That can't be of God. This God of love would not do that to his own. But God did do all those things. Because God has greater and bigger things in view. And God has eternity in view. And God has his own glory in view. Always, in all things. And the people here in Ezra have been through a time when their faith is weak. They gave up in Jerusalem and went home. They couldn't face it. Their faith was weak. You know what it feels like sometimes that when your circumstances feel as if they're overwhelming you. Those occasions when the, the, when the psalmist says it feels like the water is up to your neck and still rising. But God is still over you. 
He has not abandoned you. And he will remain faithful. And the Bible helps you to see that. And it's the promise to which you must cling. And keep on clinging. Because over and over again, what we see in the word of God is that at those times when the faith of his people is the lowest, then it is that God shows himself again to be faithful and kind and good and gracious. And to show that he is indeed over them. And God does something that will serve to stir the people up again. What does God do? He sends in preachers. He does what? Sorry? He sends in preachers. Time to send in the preachers. Now, even some of you perhaps may find it strange that God is going to use preachers to reinvigorate his people. Surely it's going to take something more dynamic than that. Uh, But you see, there is nothing more dynamic in this whole world than when someone declares the word of God and that word is accompanied by the Spirit of God. There is nothing in this world more dynamic than that. There is nothing in this world that can move the hearts of men and women more than that. And God knows us. He knows our frame. He knows what we need. He knows how he's chosen to work. Preachers is what they need. The preachers arrive. And he sends two. Haggai, Zechariah. Two of the minor prophets, as we call them today. Not minor as in less important, but minor because relatively short. Haggai is quite short. Zechariah is a bit longer. And uh, he sends them in. You'll find them towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Remember, the 39 books of the Old Testament are not all strictly in chronological order. The order that they come in is more the type of writing that it is rather than when it was written. And all the prophets you'll find at the end. Haggai. Well, Haggai and Zechariah are numbers 37 and 38 out of 39. There's only Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and as you work your way backwards, you'll find Zechariah, and then you'll find Haggai. Uh, Probably very obscure to some of you. Listen to how Haggai begins to speak. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Some of you now, for the very first time, think, oh, right, so that's where Haggai fits into the history of Israel. It's to do with Ezra and Nehemiah. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. 
See, the despondent. Wow, we can't bring ourselves to go back to Jerusalem. Oh, the discouragement we'll get when we go back there. No, the time's not right. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, It is time for you yourself, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. <laughs> consider your ways. God's appointed Haggai. God's put his own words into the mouth of the prophet. And he preaches the word of God. And there's something of a rebuke in those opening verses, isn't there? Here you are, sitting in all your panelled houses. You've abandoned the temple, you've gone back home, and you've sorted all your own stuff out. You've had plenty of time and money and energy to spend on your own house. But what have you been doing about building mine? You can find the time to spend on your house, but you should be attending my house. Well, maybe even that's a word for some this morning. You can find time for your own house when you should be attending mine. Preaching does sometimes have to include rebuke, you know. Paul says so to Timothy. Are you someone who so often is just at home attending to your own agenda when really you should be with the Lord's people dealing with God's agenda for you as a member of the church? But as well as rebuke, there's also a wonderful word of encouragement and exhortation. There nearly always is. Very rarely is it just rebuke. And Haggai continues to have a look at uh, chapter 2 of Haggai as he's speaking to these people and bringing the word of God to them. Chapter 2 at verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. See how faithful God is? Never left you. Just as faithful as ever. I'm with you. Be strong. Read on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Who is the desire of all nations. It's the Messiah. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God has this grand scheme and plan. Nothing's going to stop it. And the Lord's people are to play their part in that scheme and in that plan. Preparing for the coming of the Messiah in Jerusalem. Zechariah also opens his record by letting us know that it was in the second year of the reign of Darius the king that he too is ministering to the people. I preached right through Zechariah back in 2006. The archive of sermons on the website doesn't go back that far, so you can't go and listen to it. But these are God's spokesmen, and God uses the preaching of his word to stir up the hearts of the people and strengthen them. That's still how God works. And in Zechariah, there are specific words of encouragement for Zerubbabel. There are messages directed specifically at him. And there are many things in Zechariah which all are pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reference to Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's a reference to the 30 pieces of silver that will be paid to Judas as he betrays Christ into the hands of the leaders. There's a reference to Christ's body being pierced on the cross in Zechariah. It was the word of God and it was the word of God pointing them to Christ that God used in their heart. And it strengthened them and it made them bold again. And the outsider looking in may well have concluded that God isn't doing very much at all here. But in their hearts, by his word, God is accomplishing a very great deal. You see, it isn't in exciting programs and clever and novel ideas that God builds his church and strengthens his people. It's in the faithful preaching of the word of God. It's always been that way and it still is today. Now there are quite a few away for the half-term holiday today. But over the last few years, little by little, we've seen these empty seats filling up. There's been no great fanfare to announce some grand new scheme. There's been no grand new scheme to announce. In many ways, you could say nothing has changed at Belvedere Road. But what have we done as a church? We've given ourselves to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Here on Sundays, on Wednesdays, with our children and young people on Fridays and in Sunday school. And perhaps for some time it seemed as if little was being accomplished. But these are the means God uses to do his work. And people are joining us. Not because of anything new or clever that we've done. But for what reason? We are a church who have given ourselves to preaching. We're not the only church. We're not trying to suggest that. Thank God that we're not the only church in Liverpool that's given itself to preaching. We thank God that we're not, we're not the only church that is growing in Liverpool because it's given itself to preaching. 
And to give ourselves to preaching is not just about the preacher. It's about everyone who comes to listen. And God's by his grace and in his power. And because of his means, the building is going up. And we're strengthened and we rejoice that God is faithful to the weak in faith. God sent in the preachers. One of the clarion calls in the New Testament is that God would still send out preachers. How, how will they hear about Christ? How will they know about Christ if no one goes and tells them? And wherever you are in your daily life, people need preachers. People who will herald Christ. People who will make Christ known. People who will speak Christ to them. Because that's how God brings people to himself. Because people go and speak the truths of God's word and of Christ. And in that, all of us have a part to play. Maybe not from a pulpit, but in plenty of other places that I never get to. And then the third and final thing we see in this passage is the remarkable way in that God is providing benefactors in Babylon for God's people. Benefactors, people are going to do them good. Now, in the latter parts of the Old Testament, the name Babylon becomes synonymous with judgment and oppression and wickedness in the same way as Egypt does in the early part of Israel's history. And yet God is able to so overrule that King Darius is willing to display unbelievable charity and generosity towards Israel. It's important to remember that chronologically these letters of chapters 5 and 6 actually happened in time before the letters that are recorded in chapter 4. Those letters are looking forward to a later period. It will be years later that Artaxerxes will rule against them as they're building up Jerusalem's walls. But we've got these two accounts set side by side in Ezra, which is really quite helpful for us because it allows us to see two very contrasting situations where letters are sent and one letter receives a, a strong response against Israel, but the other letter is greeted with generosity. The letters that we looked at in chapter 4, well, they, they're kind of full of twisted logic and unfounded accusations and assumptions and allegations loaded against Jerusalem. And there the king will take the bait and he, he will decree against them. And sometimes that's what God's people can expect to happen to them. But with God being no less involved when quite the opposite occurs, as we have in chapters 5 and 6. And here we have these two men, the governor, Tatanai and Sheth Bosnai, and they just seek to establish the facts. What exactly is going on here? They're not really being judgmental. They're not jumping to conclusions. What exactly is it that you're doing and who has allowed you to do it? Just tell us what the facts are. You might be interested to know just in passing Historians searching through the ancient records in Babylon have actually found evidence of this man Tatanai, who was indeed a governor under King Darius. 
So the Bible is correct about this factual information. And we see that the Jewish elders provide these men with a potted history of what's been going on, including the parts played both by Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, and uh, Tatanai and Sheth Bosnai put in a letter to King Darius. Here's what they've said is going on. What, what do you want us to do? What should we do about this? And at the opening of chapter 6, Darius receives the letter, heeds their advice, and sends his officials off to search through all the records to see if these things are so. And the search is extremely thorough. Because in all the records that they've got, they're looking for one scroll. And they find it. And it isn't even in Babylon. It's in another place called Achmetha. That's in Media, because by now this is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. It's a huge place. And Darius knows, well, there's records there, there's records there, there's records there. Apparently, Achmetha was one of the summer palaces that the kings of Babylon used to use. Find it. It's there somewhere. Find it. And it's found. And Darius is able to read it for himself in their own official records from the empire of Babylon. One scroll. And it confirms the Jews' story. And then from verse 7, Darius issues his own edict regarding the building work at Jerusalem and builds on everything that Cyrus has already done. Leave them alone to rebuild this house of God, verse 7. We will cover all their costs, verse 8. Everything that they need to perform their acts of worship must be provided on a daily basis, verses 9 and 10. If anyone ever tries to change this edict, they will pay with their life, verse 11. May their God destroy anyone who ever sets their hand against them, verse 12. There is some degree of self-serving here in Darius. You know at the end of verse uh, 10, what he actually says there of chapter 6, and that they can pray for the life of the king and his sons. Um, There's some self-serving in this man. Um, They had uh, quite a pluralistic view of religion in Babylon. And whichever gods are out there, uh, let's have them all on our side working for us basically is his approach Uh, let's just cover all the bases and uh, if they've got a god they're praying to let's get them praying for us and this stands in complete contrast to what we saw in chapter four which is actually going to be in the future where babylon is working against them but on this occasion darius is this most generous benefactor How does God fit into these two contrasting pictures? On the the one hand, all the help they could ever need from Darius, yet in the future, Artaxerxes will turn against them. How does God stand in those two contrasting scenarios? Is, Is God more at work in one than he is in the other? Is he more at work 
in this Darius scenario than he will be when Artaxerxes goes against them? No. God's no less at work in one than the other. Is their experience under Darius something that they've deserved? Have they earned God's blessing somehow here? No. No. Does the fact that they've given heed to God's word guarantee such blessing? No, we must never even jump to that conclusion. There are no promises that everything's going to go your way if you're obedient to the word of God. God does whatever he pleases. He's working out his purposes. There's no promise or guarantee of ease in the life of God's people. But he remains the ever faithful one. And in all things, they're in his hand. And he uses all things as he pleases. Darius would be for Israel a source of great blessing. Artaxerxes in the future will be a thorn in their side. But God is still God. God is still at work. And he's still using both of these kings to do his bidding. And that's why you see Christians, even in much more recent years, have written words like this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God is at work in all these different circumstances. We can look back as a church, and some of you can remember with me times of great turmoil times of division, times of unbelievable heartache. Has God abandoned us? Is the candlestick being removed? Were those hard days any less of God than the days of blessing? No. He's the Lord. No one can say to him, what are you doing? Some of you have had similar experiences in your personal lives, and the same applies there also. He's with you in the difficult times. He's with you in the good times. He's with you in the hard times. He's with you in the easy times. And all of those times are of him. 
as we've seen over the last few years, the Lord has provided us with this place where we can meet on a Sunday and other times. And they keep on bending over backwards to accommodate us. It would have been so much easier for them in the summer just to say, I'm sorry, there's so much happening here, you just can't meet. Sorry. They've bent over backwards to, to let us meet here. They've done the same at the moment, all the arrangements that they're making. It's a bit like the promise of Darius to Israel. In the world, there are those who are raging against us, and there are those who are being benevolent towards us. This is God at work amongst his people. You'll have personal circumstances which are hard, hard, hard. And you'll have other times that are pure delight and joy. And it is God who is over us, who is in it all. And what you must focus on is this. God is faithful, even if you are weak in faith. And one thing that's continually needed is faithful preaching that points you to Christ. Because God's word, accompanied by his spirit, is the most effectual force this world has ever known. And as the word of God points you to Christ, you will be reminded again and again, as we've seen in Ephesians, the riches of the blessings that God has poured out upon you. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power that is working in you mightily. And in the midst of times when it seems as if everything is going against us, God is still God and he will remain faithful. And we may trust him and we may praise him. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see afresh in your word, O Lord, that you are God over all things and to know, O Lord, that you indeed are over us in every circumstance and in every situation. And Lord, there will be times when it would appear from a worldly point of view that everything is just falling apart and it's difficult to see you anywhere. But Lord, teach us afresh that you indeed are in all of these things, that you will never abandon us nor forsake us, and that, Lord, you are the ever-faithful one, even when our faith is weak. And help us always, O oh Lord, to keep our minds and our eyes and our hearts ever fixed upon you, upon your word and upon Christ, that he might be our hope and our strength and our stay. And that, Lord, as we use your word and read it and study it, that discouragement will be dispelled as we remember afresh that you are God and that you are working out all of your will and purposes. Grant us faith and trust in you, O Lord, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.